Um, it's good to see you this morning. Welcome to Redemption Hill. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, it is gl- it is a uh, it's good to see you. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the moms that are in here. Um, 2009 will forever go down in the annals of history for Redemption Hill as the year of the baby. Uh, for those of you who are new or who aren't aware or haven't heard us say it for the past 10 weeks, I think we're up to 14 babies due this year uh, before the end of 2009. So I think a lot of people are, are out showing their bellies to, uh, to loving family members this morning. Uh, so that, that nursing mom's room back there or wherever we figure out the right place to put it will be our satellite overflow uh, in the fall uh, with our current nursing moms and 14 new, new ones to be added. So uh, the year of the baby, and the Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice. So we continually rejoice with all of the families here who are expecting new life, be it the first to the eighth. We've got the whole spectrum covered. Uh, and so we really do celebrate what God is doing in the, in the biological life of this church family and in adding to our number and, and giving us children to love, to care for, and to teach and to train in the ways of the Lord. Uh, the scripture also says to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, but yet to weep with those who weep. And for a lot of people, uh, Mother's Day is a joyous time that's a little bit bittersweet. Uh, a lot of people may have lost their mom this past year. A lot of women may be struggling with infertility or, or the loss of kids uh, or just general circumstances in their life that make Mother's Day one of those things. It's a great joy because all of us are here and therefore we all had a mother to be thankful for. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it can bring sorrow. Um, it can be a little bit bittersweet. So we want to pray for all the families and for all the moms. And we're just going to leave it at that. No special Mother's Day service, uh, just a continuance of our desire to come alongside the families of the church and to love them and to help equip you uh, to be a family that reflects the glory of God in the city and in the places that God has sent you and equips you to raise your children in such a way that they learn to desire the heart of God and desire to pursue after God and are transformed in his image and go and do much greater things than we ever could. So uh, let me pray for us, for the moms, for the families, uh, for the graduates who, as you can see, have moved on this week. Uh, We'll be celebrating the graduation of the University of Richmond students uh, this afternoon. And then the rest of the students just took a a day off or a week off. So uh, we want to celebrate and pray for them as well um, and send them on their way. So pray with me and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for, one, this beautiful day, uh, this unbelievable spring day that reminds us of your grace and your beauty and your power and your majesty and the regeneration of new life, even in nature. And, and Lord, we celebrate as a church family the, the generation of, of new life and of, of new children that you are blessing this church and the families of this church with. And, and so we pray not just for the moms to be, to be moms who train their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, who teach their children to love and desire and pursue and surrender to your word and, and to give themselves to you with wholehearted compassion and devotion. And we pray also for the dads and for the brothers and the sisters and the entire families that that your image and your glory be cultivated in that family and that that family becomes an instrument to to spread and to reflect your glory throughout this city. So we pray for peace. We pray for wisdom. We pray for encouragement. We pray for safety. Lord, that all the families of this church may experience your presence in their homes in the midst of all sorts of circumstances that we face in this world. And so, Lord, we just ask and, and we beg and we hold on to your promise that you will be our God and, and we will be your people. And we ask this for your great name's sake and your glory. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 19. Uh, Psalm 19. We're going to read this first and then I'm going to wander and rant for a little bit and then we'll come back to it. 
Psalm 19. This is a psalm of David. I'll read. You can catch up. It should be up on the screen this morning. Yeah, look at that. See, I'm, I'm getting better. I just look like I know what I'm doing with technology with an iPhone and a Mac. I really don't know how all this stuff works. So Psalm 19 is up there for you. Uh, verse 1. The heavens <clears throat> excuse me, declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out throughout the entire earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. The word of the Lord. There is a, uh, a great story that history tells, many of you may be familiar with it, of a young man who was raised in a, a wealthy upper middle class home by a mother who was a devoted follower of Christ, who was passionate about the things of Christ and the word of God, and a father who was not quite the same way. Uh, His heart was cold and put away from the spiritual things and the things of God. In fact, he thought they were otherworldly nonsense. And so much like our children and much like our lives, from the day this boy was born, there was a war going on for his soul. His soul was the prize of a great battle that was taking place. And as the boy encountered the comfort of God's word in his mother's lap day in and day out as she read it to him, he grew up to really hear from his father his dad's passions for him to become a great businessman and a great financier and to have great success in the world. And so he knew the comfort of the Lord that comes in the scripture, but he was also led, bombarded, taught, and, and, and compelled by the passions his father instilled within him for great success in, in other things. And as this boy grew up, he turned out to be unbelievably brilliant. History may argue that he was one of the most wise and brilliant men, philosophers, to have ever written a thing or, or walked upon the earth. And he grew to be this extremely wise and brilliant man that had a very deep, a very strong and a very passionate wild streak. 
a very strong rebellious tendency in his heart. History records not only the, the life of this man and what he did, but his exploits with his friends in their town are almost as infamous as the th- great things that he did and the great things that were produced out of his life. And as he grew and he became more wise and his brilliance became clear to all those around him, he ended up actually becoming a professor teaching philosophy at the most renowned academies in the region of the time, teaching the, the children of the wealthiest and the most privileged people in the entire region. And then one summer afternoon, as a young man, he was spending some time in the garden of a friend, just thinking and, and just meditating upon his life and, and his success and, and his career. And he began to wrestle with the emptiness that he was feeling in his soul that week in and week out as he would travel to the great seaside and oceanside resorts of his region and celebrate the weekend with endless amounts of of women and and parties and food and drink only to sober up in enough time to get back to the academy to teach and amaze people with his brilliance. He he was finding that all of his pursuits, no matter how well he could reason them and and how ferocious he could be about pursuing them, could never really bring him a joy and a a contentment and a sense of of settling for something that he was looking for. And, And he was finding himself empty, malnourished in his own pursuits. And on top of that, he was beginning to struggle with the reality that he didn't really believe the philosophy that he was teaching. And so this self-centered idea that he was espousing in the academies to all of the wealthiest and all of the most privileged and those that would go on to such great things, he was struggling in his own heart with the fact that he didn't believe it anymore. And so not only was he doubting what he believed that had made him who he was, that he was teaching others, but now his conscience and his mind and his soul were heavy with the guilt as he would think of the faces of the students that he taught. As he would basically use this philosophy to unpack great things and build up unbelievable defenses to the the truth of what he had learned from his mother in Scripture, he recognized that he had trained a a generation of, of young people to disregard the truths about who God was and pursue something that could only be satisfied, they thought, in themselves. And his conscience was getting very, very heavy with guilt as he saw all the people that he led away from the truth and the faces of the endless amounts of women that he had used in his young life began to haunt him and, and weigh on him. And he was sitting in the garden of a friend and pondering all of this. And he, he wrote this in one of his journals about this time. He said, I probed the hidden depths of my own soul and I wrung its pitiful secrets from it. And when I mustered them all before the eyes of my heart, a great storm broke within me. Somehow I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. For I felt that I was still captive to my own sin. And in misery, I just kept crying, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow or tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? Desperately in his soul, he wanted to be free free from the sins that he had now realized were enslaving him to a life that could not bring him what he thought he wanted, but he was in the battle, in the midst of a struggle. For as desperate as he felt to be free, he recognized that the the desires of his heart and the lusts of his heart were so deeply rooted into his soul that he couldn't just let go, and he found himself in the midst of this unbelievable torment. He said, I was asking myself these questions, weeping all the while, with the most bitter sorrow in my heart, when all at once I heard the singing of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. 
At this I looked up, thinking hard to whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and I stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read. So he opened up the Bible that was with him, and I'm sure along with many other books of great philosophy and and knowledge that he was reading and studying. He opened up the book of Scripture, and we don't necessarily espouse this view of Bible reading. We'll get to that in a little bit. But he just opened it as he felt compelled to do so. And he came to the book of Romans, chapter 13, and his eyes fell on Romans 13, 14, which says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. This is what he said. He said, In an instant, as I came to the end of that sentence, It was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and the darkness of doubt was dispelled. You, O God, converted me to yourself so that I no longer placed any hope in this world but stood firmly upon thy rule of faith. The man, the brilliant philosopher, teacher, whose life transformed arguably, maybe second to Jesus and a couple other men in all of history, had more effect on transforming the lives, the hearts, the nations, the governments, and the history of humankind was St. Augustine. Augustine found that the word of God was the, the one thing that had the power, the passion, and the truth to transform his heart and to liberate him from a bondage that he felt himself tied into, entangled by, in the lusts of his own soul. So as we continue into our our series called Cultivate, where we're taking the the month of May to look at the convictions, uh, to look at the things that we value so deeply into the life of this church that we want to see cultivated into the soul of the people that make this church up uh, as we dig deeper into these convictions and talk about not just worshiping Jesus above all else, which we did in week one, and, and treasuring the riches of the gospel, which we did the last two weeks, we come to the third conviction, which is this, that we are to cultivate into our souls, into the life of this church, a passion and a desire to surrender to the word of God. When we are convinced, second to none, that the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God are are the most powerful agents of transformation in existence in this day, in this place, in this time, second to only the gospel itself, which is contained in the Bible, in the scriptures, in the word of God. And so we are convinced if we're to be the people that God has called us to be who will cultivate and and bring him glory through cultivating a gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people that plant churches, that transform communities, and to be the people that he's called us to be, we have to be a people whose hearts are cultivated to treasure the riches of the gospel and ultimately surrender, surrender to the word of God. For those of you who, who have been here and are familiar, as we unpack the convictions, the values that we have in the church, we we very prayerfully and intentionally considered this as we, as we prayed and, and put these things together, that for our church and for what God was calling us to be, it wouldn't be good enough to just settle on a list of things that we thought were important, that we felt that we would value, that were necessary to be who God called us to be, because that's a very simple thing to do. I mean, a lot of times you can get caught up with these ideas that say, like this week, we value the Bible. And we can become very good at unpacking the arguments for the reliability of the Bible and the historicity of the Bible and the truth of the Bible. And we can memorize everything we need to know about the Bible. And we can carry on great conversations about the power of the Bible. But the reality of it is the Bible needs to produce something in our lives. We have to approach it and respond to it in a particular way. And 
as we've prayed about what would cultivate in us an attitude that would bring God glory and would produce gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people, we came to the fact that as we value the word of God, we must be a people who surrender to it. We must be a people who approach the, the scriptures with humility and a surrendering of soul to the truth of the word of God. So we're convinced that the Bible is the single most powerful agent of transformation that we have in our hands today. Now, let me say this before we get going. Some of you hear me say this, and you realize that this week we're going to talk about the Bible, and, and you know how you're driving on a road trip and you leave town and you don't change the radio, for those of you that still listen to the radio. Um, I, mean, I know most of you don't listen to the radio anymore, but if you listen to the radio, as you leave town, your station gets staticky when you leave its reception area. I recognize that for a great percentage of people, when you realize that we're going to talk about the importance or the nature or the character of something about the Bible, you're going to start getting staticky on me. And there's a few reasons for this, so I'll be just get them out there. For some of you, you automatically think that when we're going to talk about what it means to surrender to the Bible, that this is going to be one of those sermons that just talks about you need to read the Bible more. You just need to read more of the Bible. You just need to spend more time in the Bible. You just need to know your Bible more. And, and as true as that is, and as hard and as passionately as I'll encourage you to do that in the right perspective, that's not what this morning is going to be about. I'm not going to talk about your need to read the Bible more because for a lot of you, for very different reasons uh, in your own lives and in your own journeys right now, you're, you're hurting and you're discouraged and you're struggling and you're frustrated. And the last thing you ever want to hear somebody say in the midst of your struggle and your frustration is, just read the Bible more. Have you, have you read your Bibles? I know when we were struggling through the loss of our son, I was a pastor. I mean, I had to stand up in front of people every single Sunday and deal with not only the text that we were dealing with, but try the best that I could in the most honest and, and authentic way and human way possible to, to lead people forward in something while at the same time dealing with all that we were dealing with in our family and, and, and leading people forward and how to respond to that. And the last thing I ever wanted to hear as a human, I mean as a pastor, was as I was honest about a struggle or a disappointment or a frustration in that whole process was for somebody to come up to me and say, yeah, you just need, to, just need to get in your word a little bit more. Yeah, I hear you with that. Have, have you read this? It provoked some of the most <laughs> dark and frustrating things about me in those moments. And so for some of you, when you hear that we're going to talk about what it means to surrender to the scriptures, you think we're going to talk about reading the Bible more, and we're not going to talk about that this morning. That's not where I'm going. Uh, for some of you, you think we're going to talk about reading the Bible more, and you've heard me say that's not where we're going, and that's a good thing for you because you just want me to tell you how to read it. You just want me to say that you need to read this much Bible every single day, this way to produce this thing. And you desperately want me or Chris or Ray or somebody else to tell you how much we read, how we read, and how we come to understand what we know and what we say. And I'm not going to tell you that either. In fact, this might be rant one of something I might rant on for a long time today. So somebody keep a tally. If somebody's got one of those umpire clickers, you can keep a tally on this one. Um, we are a people and a culture and a generation, I think it's a double-edged sword, who are now becoming unbelievably gluttonous and malnourished at the same time because of technology. We have become so addicted to quantity and so allergic to quality that 
you want to know how much you have to read and how much you have to do or, or how much of all of these things you've got to accomplish to achieve a desired end. And one of the things where that happens most clearly, and I've struggled with a lot recently, and other friends and other pastors have as well, and we've talked about it and we're still talking about it, is the role that even listening to sermons like this play. And one of the most beautiful things about living in the 21st century and living in this day and in this age is that I'm going to say this and somebody's going to record it and somebody's going to stick it on the computer and there are going to be some people who want to listen to it. But for a lot of people, that is the daily consumption of the Bible. There are some people in this room that I know of who spend their entire weeks listening to upwards of five, six, seven, eight sermons on their iPods. Eight hours of Bible teaching from the pantheon of preachers from John Piper and, and Matt Chandler and Mark Driscoll and, and, and whoever else. And I fit in there somewhere uh, because you feel guilty because you come to this church and you didn't come on Sunday, so you have to listen. But, you know, six, seven, eight hours listening to people preach the Bible. And my, here's, my, here's my fear. And here's where I struggle with this consumption and this mass quantity is that you become very adept at living on the meditations, the growth and the work and the souls of, of other people who have surrendered themselves to the word and struggled through what God is teaching and what he's saying. And you become very adept at saying and quoting what I say, what other people say, but you've never actually experienced the reality of the power and the transforming power of the word of God for yourself. And so you've become accustomed to living on secondhand realities from other people's thoughts and, and studies. And listen, I, I love those things. And as I get better at managing my time, I'll listen to more of them. I don't even listen to one of them during the week. Some of you listen to like seven, eight, nine of these things. And you pass off your encounters with the word of God through the work of other people. As great as that is, don't, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It can't be priority though. It can't be first. And so as we talk about what it is to surrender to the scriptures, I'm not gonna talk about how much you need to read or how much you need to listen. Some of you need to, to pare it back a little bit. Some of you need to, to peel back and need to deal a little bit with the depth and the quality of what we're doing and what we're experiencing. And, and then some of you, uh, I'll just say this, and, and some of you will recognize that we're going to talk about what it is to surrender to the Word of God, and you've got a bone to pick with the Bible. You've got questions, you've got issues, you've got struggles. This is not going to be the morning of the sermon for the historicity of the Bible. We're not going to unpack the, 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 the interworkings of how Scripture affirms itself and how we got the Bible and, and how, how the Bible's composed. And we're not going to get into that. There's a time and a place for that. All of those things are good. All of those things are right. You need to wrestle with a lot of those questions. And we're actually going to have a time and a place to be able to deal with that uh, this summer as we, as we do our Wednesday night uh, Big Ideas series at Mary Mumford. And we have dinner and, and we walk through the big ideas and the big realities of our faith and who is God and how can we know him and what has he said about himself and what are the scriptures and what's their role and how did we get them. And we walk through all those things. We're going to take two weeks to deal with the Bible itself. All those questions, all those bones you want to pick. We're going we're gonna to go forward in our understanding of them, and we're going to open it up and do Q&A, and you can fire any shot you got. But that's not this morning. I don't want to talk to you about how much you have to read. I don't want to talk to you about why you're not reading it as often as you should. I don't want to talk to you about all the questions and the problems you've got. My, my one hope is that something that only God can do uh, in my very human and, and, and fragile words, and that's create some sort of hunger in you for them. I just want you to be a little more hungry in 20 minutes than you were before to know the word of God, to experience the word of God, to read the Bible. That's all I want. 
I, I'm not trying to, to answer all the questions. I'm not going to give you a plan. The worst thing I could ever do for you is tell you what I do because that's what I do and you need to figure out how you encounter the realities of who God is in his word and I can help you with that at another time but I just want you to, to walk away with some kind of hunger and, and only God can do that. I, I want you to be able to say with David in Psalm 19 that the word of God, the, the Bible, the scriptures, they're more precious than the finest gold. I want you to be able to say that with your heart, experience that with your soul, speak that with confidence. More precious is the word of God, sweeter than any honey, than even the drippings of the honeycomb. So that's what we're after. Problem is, we find ourselves in a, uh, in a culture that has denied the the realities and the, and, and the revelation, to use a, a big word, of God as he has given us himself in his scriptures. You see, we were created, we talk about this all the time, by God for his glory, that we were created in the image of God and we were to live a life of dependence upon God, celebrating who he is and what he has done for us and our obedience to him was really a reflection of his greatness and of his glory and as we lived in dependence upon him, he was given glory by being the one who provided for us all that we need and we received joy and satisfaction for getting everything we needed from God and it was this great plan that he had initiated. We were created for his glory and the problem with sin and the problem with this plan of God being twisted and being marred is that when we fail to recognize, when we fail to surrender, when we fail to understand the revelation or the reflection of God as he has given it to us in his word, as he has revealed himself to be, all that we're left to ever see and all that we're left to ever notice is ourself. When we fail to see God for who he is, we're left with our chief desire and our chief pursuit being turned back in on ourself and being created for his glory, we were never created to satisfy ourself. The self can never be self-satisfied. The self, you, can never satisfy yourself. And so now we're left with our own futile and empty attempts to satisfy our unbelievably ever-changing needs and longings and wants and wishes and desires never having been created to be able to do so. And so we've managed to take God and shrink him down to a size that's manageable for our minds, manageable for the worldviews that we have, manageable for the things that we want or the things that we want to achieve, never understanding who we really are in light of who he really is and what he has done for us in Jesus and the purpose for which he has created us and put us in this place Rather than understand all of that in light of who he is and how he's revealed himself, we've shrunk him down to be manageable in our own minds, in our own eyes, and in our own life. And instead of living by faith, instead of having a faith that expresses itself in a dependence upon God based on who he is and what he has revealed, we've managed to shrink God down to a a set of information and facts and things that we have to know to make good decisions. Decisions. For Jesus, he's become data, things that we either agree with or don't agree with so that we can manage our response to him. And instead of faith, we get decisions. And instead of real hope, instead of a real life that's grounded in a hope that comes because of the reality of who God is and what he has done in the past and what he's promised to do for us in the future that's guaranteed because of the character of the God who's revealed himself to us in the scriptures, instead of really experiencing hope for the future because of who God is for us, especially in the past, We're left to build our lives upon 
our best guesses and our wishful thinking that's far more informed by our own sinful desires for health and and wealth and and prosperity than we are the real God who has created us for his glory and who has come and rescued us and redeemed us in himself and in his son, our hope comes from our own wishful thinking. And without faith, without hope, you can sure guess that love is far behind to be knocked down like a domino. Instead of loving others greater in a way that's greater than the way that we love ourselves. Instead of loving others and esteeming others is more desired than ourselves, we're left to pursue our own passions and pursue our own fortunes. We're after pursuing power, control, approval, all of those things on our own. No faith, no real hope, no real love. Listen to this. One of my favorite professors, Scott Haithman, he said, by not knowing God, as he has revealed himself to be, and surrendering ourselves to him. We've settled for a watered-down mediocrity. That's a mockery of redemption. We could preach on that sentence for a long time. We've settled, down, we've settled for a watered-down mediocrity. That's a mockery of redemption. Yourself was never intended to carry the burden of producing faith, hope, and love. We were never intended to meet our own needs, by making an idol of the created order, including ourselves. We were never designed for the disappointment that comes from chasing second-class dreams. Don't let that pass you by. We were never designed for the disappointment that comes from chasing second-class dreams. The primary object of our affection, our treasure that we talked about the last two weeks, was never intended to be anyone or anything but God himself. The Bible is God's antidote to the poison that comes from seeking our satisfaction in anything other than knowing and enjoying God forever. The Bible, the Word of God, the revelation of the person, character, and work of God himself. God created us for himself, for his glory. And he intends to transform us and change us. And he speaks to us. I love this. Here's what we're going to do with the Bible. Here's how we're going to talk about the Bible. I want, you, I want you to want to read it in a way maybe you haven't read it before. God speaks to us in a way that he intends to capture our souls. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Bible. I don't, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about picking this thing up. Or ever, or ever have read it or, or spent any time in it and recognized the beauty of the way that God spoke and the way that God intended to have things recorded for us. This thing is written in such a way that it's, to, it's written in such a way that it's, it's meant to capture our soul. It's meant to capture our whole person, our whole being. As we talked about in the past, the, the soul is, is really the collection of the entire inner man, the mind, the heart, the will, the emotions, the affections. And the Bible was written in such a way, God inspired and spoke in such a way that he intended to capture our whole person in it. And, and so the Bible is not, it's not this encyclopedia, a very small encyclopedia, smaller than a, a Britannica one volume. Uh, the Bible is never meant to be treated or approached or responded to like an encyclopedia. And the majority of us, if we've had much experience with our Bibles, tend to approach our Bibles like they're a very compact encyclopedia. I mean, wh- what does this thing say about marriage? 
What does it say about dating? What does it say about kids? And so we go to the contents page, and all it gives us is a list of names and books. It doesn't tell us where marriage is. It doesn't tell us where dating is. And so we search and we try to find things that say something related to what it is we're trying to find or, or find things that say something related to what we want to hear. And, and we approach the Bible like this encyclopedia. And if God had intended to give us an encyclopedia, he would have given us an encyclopedia. But that's not what he gave us. It's, it's also not a collection, no matter how pretty and, and gilded and gold the edges of your book actually are. It's not a very pretty leather-bound collection of nice fortune cookie sayings. It's not a collection of, of, of daily doses of encouragement and, and, and wisdom and, and things that will warm your heart and warm your soul as you put your makeup on in the morning and, and, and rush off to work. It's, it's not a collection of, of very pithy and, and trite things that refuse to acknowledge the realities of our own heart and of our own soul and of the world that we live in and the life that we live in. It's, it's a story. Ultimately, in and of itself, the Bible in a whole is a story. It's the story of God's sweeping plan of redemption. It's the story of the character and the passion and the mercy and the justice and the love and the holiness and the righteousness of the God who created all things that are in his pursuit of his people who turn their backs towards him in disregard and rebellion and his love overcoming their sin while all at the same time vindicating his holiness and justice in his self on the cross in Jesus. It's the story of God's pursuit of his people who, who, who he created for his glory. The Bible is this unbelievable story that's made up of 66 books written by some 40-something authors over I mean, who knows how many period of years. I've heard people say different numbers. It's this collection of these books, but it's one unbelievable story. Just like any good book you read or any good movie you get, there's a guy named N.T. Wright who did a brilliant job of bringing this back to the forefront in the last 10 years. But like any good story or any good movie that you come across, the Bible as a whole follows the same sweeping dramatic plot line of anything that you read. In the beginning, you're introduced to the characters, the antagonist and the protagonist. You're introduced to the conflict that's gonna involve itself in the story. And from there, it begins to build and the crisis begins to rise. And throughout this whole story of the Old Testament and, and God's relationship to his people, you see the conflict escalating to this great point where at some point, God is either gonna have to absolutely wipe out all of these people who continue to rebel and turn their backs against him because his holiness cannot stand in the face of such great sin and great rebellion or God is gonna actually have to do something himself to resolve this thing and it climaxes in his work on the cross in Christ when he came in himself and took our sins upon himself and, and in that process offered us his righteousness and the Bible climaxes in this great story on the cross and then the effects of that conflict, the effects of that climax, the, the effects of, of what God had done are then lived out in the rest of the Bible and you see how that resolution is lived out through the rest of the New Testament and the writings of Paul and the writings of Peter and the apostles to the churches. And you see how that resolution on the cross is to be lived out in daily life. And it's this beautiful story. It's this unbelievably personal story where we tend to think about who God is and, and we think about these abstract ideas and these really crazy concepts about the nature and the person of God and we talk with a language about God that we never talk up with on a day in and day out basis but when you actually read the Bible 
When you actually open up the Bible and you read it, you begin to see that God revealed himself in unbelievably personal and relational ways. When God speaks about himself, he actually speaks of himself as, as a king, as a warrior, as a shepherd, as a teacher, as a parent. He speaks in these unbelievably relational ways that help us understand a little bit about his character and a little bit about his nature and the relationship and the priority of the relationship that we have with him because of who he is. And we begin to see something about this person, about this God who, who has pursued us, who has not given up on us, and, and who in himself and in Jesus has made a way that we might be reconciled to him. The Bible is unbelievably personal. It's unbelievably real. It uses these images because Images, more than anything else, can capture your soul. Images, pictures, stories, more than anything else, can grab a hold of your mind, grab a hold of your heart, transform your affections, which then inform your will and your decisions. Images capture the essence of who you are. And God's purpose in the Bible is to reveal to us who he is in such a way that it captures our souls. Images also leave room for mystery. You can talk about a parent, you can talk about a king, you can talk about a warrior, you can talk about a teacher. But ultimately, we can know God adequately enough to grow in a relationship with him. We can know him adequately enough about has, through how he has revealed himself to us in such a way that we can know him and be changed by him, but we'll never know him exhaustively. So the way that God speaks, the story that he has woven and recorded in the scriptures reveals to us who he is and the intentions that he has towards us and a little bit about his character in such a way that we can know him in a way that we're changed. We can know him in a way that we can relate to him, but we'll never actually know him exhaustively. In images, the way that God spoke and had the Bible recorded, it leaves room for that mystery. It leaves space for it. The best, the best image that God speaks of in the Bible, that God reveals himself in, in all of scripture, isn't just the idea of a king or the idea of a teacher, the idea of a parent. It's a living, breathing human itself. God reveals himself ultimately, his character, his person, his heart, his nature, in the person, breathing, human, living reality of Jesus. You see, it's in the Bible it's in Scripture. It's in the Word of God, whatever nomenclature you tend to use for this thing. It's in the Bible that we encounter Jesus. It's in the Scriptures that we encounter God in His fullest revelation in flesh and in blood. It's in the Bible that we encounter Jesus, and it's Jesus, who we talked about a few weeks ago, that brings a transformation in himself that our hearts are to treasure when we talked about treasuring the good news of the gospel, of what God has done for us in Jesus. If we're gonna be a people that treasure the riches of the gospel, then we have to be a people who surrender themselves to the word of God because it's in the word of God, it's in the Bible, it's in the scriptures where the good news of who God is and what he has done is actually revealed to us. It's the, the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God that we are to mine, that we are to pursue, that we're to treasure, that we're to pull those things out of. If we're gonna be a people who worship Jesus above everything else, then we have to be a people who surrender themselves to the word of God, to scripture, because it's in scripture where Jesus is most clearly and accurately revealed. So if we're gonna be a people who cultivate the things that we talk about, the convictions and the values that we have, if we wanna see our hearts and our souls cultivated to worship Jesus above everything else, to treasure the riches of the gospel, then we have to be a people 
who are cultivating in our hearts and in our souls a desire to surrender to the Word of God. Because there are more things that will rise to a sense of prominence and desire in our hearts, just as they will when we think about worshiping Jesus, just as they will when we think about treasuring the riches of the gospel. There are things that will rise up and exalt themselves in our hearts and in our desires when we talk about what it means to surrender ourselves to the Word of God. And we use that word surrender very intentionally because there will be a surrendering involved in recognizing the authority and the truthfulness of who God is as he's revealed himself in the scriptures and a willingness on our part to surrender our pride, to surrender our own expectations, to surrender our own desires, and to surrender the things that we bring to the Bible if we're gonna see God for who he is and be changed by him through a relationship with him. Psalm 19. You wondered how in the world is he ever gonna get Psalm 19. Sometimes this happens. Sometimes I go and go and go, and then we'll come back to where we started. Psalm 19. God, let me open it up. I didn't type it out in my notes. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all of the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he, God, has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, he runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from his heat. In the Bible, ultimately, we encounter God in the person of Jesus, who through his life, death, and resurrection brings real redemption and real transformation to us right now in such a way that as we read the Bible and as we understand the Bible, as we encounter God in the Bible, we begin to see that all of the scriptures from the very beginning of the book to the very end are either anticipating and pointing towards Jesus or receiving their fulfillment or their, their fullness in the person of Jesus to such a degree that we begin to read the Bible and see Jesus across the whole thing. This is exactly what he taught. That's not something I made up. If you remember the story, we won't go back and read it because we don't have time. Although, no, we don't have time. After he was crucified and buried, was raised from the dead, Jesus appeared to two of his followers on a road back to their hometown, Emmaus, about eight miles away from Jerusalem. And these two guys were absolutely bewildered. Their hope, their joy, their future, their anticipation all of it had been wrapped up in what the, who they thought this person, this man, this Jesus was, who was then crucified, nailed on a cross, and died and put in a tomb. And they left Jerusalem thinking, what, what are we to do now? Where do we go now? What's God doing now? And Jesus appeared to these two, but they didn't know who he was. And, and I love this. You don't have to hear this. Only because some of you never read the Bible very personally. It's in Luke 24. Listen to Jesus. This is what he says. He says, how, how foolish are you? This is Jesus looking at his followers. They don't know who it is. They just think it's some really arrogant, crass man probably at this point because here they are mourning the death and the loss of their dear friend, their hope, their savior, the one they put their hope and trust in. He's gone. They're not just wandering back home. They're despondent. And here comes this traveler, this stranger along the way. He says, how foolish are you? are you and, and slow of heart to believe 
all of the prophets, to not believe all that the prophets have spoken. How foolish, how slow of heart are you? Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so ultimately, as we encounter and surrender to the Bible, we encounter and surrender ourselves to God in Christ, to the person and work of Jesus. Our boy Augustine was actually the one who coined the phrase of the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Psalm 19, David, captures my heart probably anew every single time I read this. It actually takes me a little while to read it because when I read it, it, it captures something in me in, in a way that, that other Another psalm sometimes don't, but it captures my heart anew because here we have a psalm, a poem, about a God who actually speaks. But a God who actually speaks to us. I don't know if you can fathom the immenseness of this reality that the God who created everything that is, that, that spoke and things were, that spoke and cosmos were flung out into what we call space, whatever it was then. He spoke and he separated the waters. He spoke and there were animals. He spoke and there were trees. When God speaks, things happen. This is a a psalm, it's it's a poem declaring the glory of this God who has spoken. The first six verses talk about the reality that in the things that God has created, all of creation speaks of his character and of his glory. All of creation speaks of the wisdom of a God who has created things to operate the way that they do. One of my favorite hobbies, and I don't do it as much as I I used to or would like to. I'm not a smart guy. Uh, I'll confess, I cheated in math in in like the ninth or 10th grade. I I can't do long division. I can't even use those fancy calculators because I didn't know how to shift the thing to get to the other thing. I I managed to get my way through because I cheated. I'm horrible with numbers, but one of my favorite things in the world to do is read some of the stuff that the really smart physicists and scientists are writing because the smart ones can write it in a way that I can figure it out and read it. Like there's this guy named Brian Green who teaches at Columbia, who's kind of the head of the, the search for the unified theory. Uh, you'll see him on Nova all the time. I love to read this guy's stuff. I love to watch this guy on television. I love to hear him talk about the things that they're discovering, about the way that the universe is put together, the way that it's wired, the way that it operates, all the things that go into the, the life that we take for granted because when I hear him talk, I hear him actually proclaim of someone so wise and so brilliant as to just speak. And those things come. He's given himself over to figure out this unified theory of existence of what is the one idea that takes all of creation and all the known world and unifies it together that we understand its origins, that we understand its purposes. And I'm listening to him going, oh my goodness! You are a better preacher than all of us out here. If you could just get up here, I wouldn't have to do anything. Because when he talks about the created order, oh, your mind just is filled with an unbelievable wonder. And I'm driven back to a God who spoke with intention, and that's what came. He knew it. 
He spoke it, and it came into existence. That's what David is talking about in these first six or seven verses, first six verses. But greater than all of that, greater than all that is spoken and revealed about the person and the character of God and what he has created, he has spoken in a way about himself in Scripture. He has revealed his character and his wisdom in a way that we can interact with, that we can know, and that we can be transformed by. Listen, listen to this, verses, verse 7. We're going to go quick because, well, if you brought your lunch, we'll stay longer. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. What does the Bible, what does David say about what happens when God speaks? What does David say about the word of God and what happens when God speaks? Look quick, we'll go fast. I wish we could unpack all of them, but David says in these verses that the word of the Lord, the Bible, the scriptures are perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. In them there are no errors. Theologians call this inerrancy. That's a bone we can pick on Wednesday night. But David says that the the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's a sure testimony. It doesn't flip-flop on itself. Think about this. When David's picturing what we would have as a, as a, a witness in a courtroom and who was giving a testimony up on stand and they gave a different testimony than the one they gave in their deposition. David is saying that the Bible, the word of the Lord, is a sure testimony. It doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't flip-flop on itself. It doesn't say one thing today and something totally different tomorrow. He says the precepts of the Lord are right. That the things that God has called us to do in response to who he is, the obedience that we are called to have towards God that's compelled because of his character and his love is right. That just as any parent would instruct their child to obey or to behave in a particular way because they know what's best for them and they want what's best for them. And if their kids could understand that they trusted their parents and knew that their parents were wanting what was best for them, then things would go well with them. David is saying that the precepts of the Lord are right. The things that God has called us to do and to respond to him in obedience, is, they're right. They lead to life. They lead to fullness. They don't lead us towards sin. They don't lead us towards hollowness. They don't lead us towards destruction. Precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments are pure. They don't lead to sin. Ah, I want to keep going. The, they're true and they're righteous. They're better than all gold. The word of the Lord, the scripture, the Bible, the better than all gold. It's a treasure beyond any treasure that can be known. It's sweeter than honey. The sweetest thing known at the time. Nothing was sweeter to the palate in this time than honey. And he said, it's sweeter than the honey that comes straight from the comb. What he means by that is that you could take that honey from the comb and you could put things in it to stretch it further and sell it at the market. And he's saying it's sweeter than the sweetest, purest honey that comes straight from the comb itself. That's the word of the Lord. That's the Bible. What happens when God speaks? What does David say happens when God speaks? One, it revives the soul. 
Literally, when David says it restores the soul or revives the soul, it's the same word that's used throughout the New Testament for conversion. The word of the Lord revives the soul. It converts the soul. It leads to salvation and transformation because it leads us to encounter Jesus. It leads us towards him. In fact, Paul said, 2 Timothy 3.10, let's go there. I'll read it to you. We're almost out. I want to read this one because this one's too good. We'll start in verse 14. He says, but as for you, Continue in what you learned, he's talking to Timothy, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. That's one of my favorite verses, because if you go back to the first chapter of 2 Timothy, you find out that Timothy learned his understanding of the Bible and his knowledge of who God was in Jesus from his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. And so in keeping with our tradition of naming all of our kids from my favorite theologians, we're having a daughter, so we're naming her Lois, because she's a good theologian. She's a good mom, like Augustine's mom who taught our kid the Bible. Um, but as for you, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus, because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that, man, that every man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work, for every good work. Paul uses that same phrase as David. The scriptures are able to make us wise towards salvation, restore our soul, actually can bring conversion and transformation ultimately because they lead us to encounter Jesus. He says they make us wise, they cause our heart to rejoice. Just like David said in other Psalms, as the, the deer would pant for the water as a deer, as you could imagine it, thirsty, dehydrated, parched in the sun, searching for a water that would bring refreshment and life to its soul. As desperate as you can see that deer panting for that water, David is saying that the scriptures bring that kind of refreshing to our soul. That just as what that deer would experience when it would hit that water on his tongue and take it into his body, the scriptures, as we surrender to them, bring that kind of refreshment that kind of life to our own soul. Cause our hearts to rejoice. They enlighten our eyes. They endure. Best-selling book of all time. We can get into that in no time. It enriches our life as a treasure, more to be treasured than the finest goal. It actually brings enrichment to our life. It's a treasure to our life. And it satisfies us. Just as honey would be the Satisfaction for the sweetest craving you could have, the Bible, satisfies your soul in a way that nothing else ever could. And then ultimately it says it's a reward. What, is, what happens when God speaks in Scripture? What does it do? It brings a reward. Now the funny thing about this, what David is saying is that the reward comes in the obedience so many of us understand that we'll be rewarded by God when we obey, and because we obey, then we'll be rewarded by God. But that's not what David actually says. It's not up there anymore. In Psalm 19, he actually says that we'll be rewarded in obedience. That as we respond to God because of who he is, compelled by how we have seen him and encountered him in the scriptures, in Jesus, and are being changed and, and are desiring and feeling compelled to honor him with our life and pursue him in obedience as we obey, we receive rewards. A clean conscience. How much freedom that would be. A pure heart. How freeing that would feel. 
He's not saying that we obey God, that we might get something for it. We receive something as we actually obey. So how do we actually, how are we to respond? How are we to encounter? How are we to engage Scripture? This is where we'll end. So we're going to run out of time. He said we value the Word of God because in it we encounter ultimately redemption in Jesus and real transformation. And God speaks to us in this unbelievably personal, relatable way with a power that has flung all things into existence and a power to actually change our hearts and and change our souls. So what's our attitude towards Scripture supposed to be? We said very intentionally it's supposed to be a surrendering. Intentionally it's, it's supposed to be a surrendering to the truth and the authority of who God is and what he has said about himself in Scripture. Listen to what David said. I love this. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Who can declare me innocent from hidden faults? Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I should be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. No one ultimately can understand their heart completely and fully. The motivations, the desires, and the intentions of the heart but the word of God can. He would say, forgive me. Forgive me for even the things that I do that I'm not even aware of, though everyone else around me is because they're affected by it. I don't even know the depth of the intention and the motivation of my heart that causes me to do some of the things I do, but forgive me for it. I'm aware of its deception. I'm aware of its hostility towards you. I don't even know what it is. The writer of Hebrews said, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. The word of the Lord can pierce through to the deepest and darkest divisions of intention and motivation in our heart in such a way that we encounter the scriptures, we encounter a reflection of the things that are so dug into our souls that we're not even aware of, and we can say with David and surrender to the authority and the power of the word that God has spoken to us, forgive me, show me, cleanse me, help me to understand the deepest things about myself that rise up in hostility towards you. The scriptures can pierce through and help us to discern those things like David prays that I'm not even, I'm not even aware of. And in the scriptures, in the word of God, we can see those things, those presumptuous sins, those attitudes and intentions of our hearts that we are fully aware of that rise and exalt themselves in hostility towards God. And we can say, because of our understanding of who God is and our encounter with him as he has revealed himself, please keep me. Grace and forgiveness and help and enlightenment for those things that are so deep in me that I can't even see, but I know that they're there. And oh, God, power to not chase after the things that I know exalt themselves against you. Surrender. It's surrender to the reality and the reflection of who God is as He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture, ultimately in Jesus. It's a surrendering that says, I desire to exalt myself against your authority, I desire to chase things that are second rate 
in your eyes. I desire to find my satisfaction in something other than you. Oh God, keep me from those presumptuous sins. It's a surrendering that comes because of an awareness and a growing affection for who God is as he's revealed himself to be. And that's what comes as we encounter God in the scriptures and we approach them with this posture of surrendering, of surrendering our intentions, surrendering our pride, surrendering our desires, surrendering our wants. And we say, Lord, we are not here to study this thing that we might get more information. I'm not here to study this thing that I can check off everything on my checklist that I was supposed to read and do. I'm not here to study this thing that I can accomplish reading this much in a month and tell other people how much I love you. I'm not here to study this thing to get something from you. I'm actually here to be studied by you through this thing. It's surrendering. It's being studied by Scripture, by the Word of the Lord, and not lording yourself over seeking to study for information or ultimately for some of us, manipulation towards God to seek the things that we think we want. It's surrendering to his desires for us, knowing that in him is life and life to the fullest or more abundant. We want to be a people who worship Jesus above all things, who treasure the riches of the gospel and who are cultivating their souls. It's not going to happen in one day. It's not going to happen right now. It's not going to happen until the day we see Jesus face to face, but we're cultivating our souls to surrender to the word of God. Let me pray for us. Father, your word says, and and you spoke this, Lord, the fullest revelation of yourself in Jesus, you spoke this and you said that we study the scriptures because we think that by them we'll gain eternal life. You said that to the most religious people of your time. And we think we study them and lord over them to gain something from them. And we miss all along that they testify about you and we refuse to come to you and have life. And so I pray for my soul, for our souls as a church, and for your church at large, Lord, that we can begin to surrender ourselves and come to you in your scriptures, that we might receive life from you, that we can be studied by you, that we can see you as you have revealed yourself to us, that we can take hold of you and be changed by you, that we don't have an attitude that exalts itself over you, but surrenders itself to you. But we don't want to be a people that worship the Bible. We don't want to be a people that exalt the Bible above, above you and above everything else, but we want to be a people that recognize that you have spoken with authority in a very real and personal nature through your Bible and in your word we can encounter you and be changed by you. It in itself is just trees cut down and ink on top of them. But Lord, you, it's in there that we encounter you. And we want to worship you above anything else. And so I simply ask for a hunger. That's it. I Just a hunger. A desire to come to your word with an attitude of surrender. What a recognition in our heart because of your spirit that shows us when we come to your word with, with pride, 
when we come to your word, to read it like an encyclopedia, to take from it what we want, or we look for it for some kind of pithy little statement that, that, that never really surrenders itself to be changed by you. Don't let us be like the people that come and look at ourselves in the mirror and walk away unchanged. Lord, let us come to your word and, and in your word see the truest picture of reality, the truest picture of life, the truest picture of ourselves and our need, and the truest picture of you from your provision and what you've given us in Jesus and help us to surrender ourselves to that authority and that reality. Help us to understand our story in the midst of yours. But all we ask this, that we might be changed, that you might be glorified, and that in that we would receive great joy, that our souls would be restored. Amen.